All right, then. Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. Hi, it's Sean. Andy here. And we're here with our buddy, Virgil Texas. What's up, buddy? Buddy, is, uh, that's a pretty bold uh, pretty bold appellative that you're using for me. Uh, oh, yeah? You know, don't you usually call me a comrade on this show, something like that. I'm, I'm just a pal. I'm just, I'm just an associate well, Virgil Texas. You know, I mean, that's for people that we respect for the most part. I, yeah, I get it. Ouch. <laughs> Way to start this one off spicy. Are we here to roast this guy or what? <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, when, when I do the show with Bree and we do the introductions and she's like, you know, I'm here with my uh, colleague, Virgil Texas. I would never call you a colleague, man. That's fucked up. Yeah, I, I've got to work my way up to colleague. No, work yourself down from buddy to colleague. There's a clear yeah, buddy hierarchy. Is way yeah. better. Yeah. But you're more than a guest because you've been on the show that. several times now, and you're you're like you feel like a little bit part of the crew, a little bit like a buddy. I feel like that. Yeah, I'm like a local favorite. Mm-hmm. A a wacky neighbor. <laughs> Just kind of wanders into the frame uh, occasionally, like uh, a Kimmy Gibbler type, if you will. <laughs> that's yeah. That's how I feel. That's how I like to be. That's how I, that's how I like to to show up on these uh, other shows in the mix. I'm a uh, something of a specter that floats on in and floats on out. I just want to clarify that was a joke about Bree. I'm just doing some <laughs> gentle riffing right now. <laughs> A specter. Very clear. Well, if you, if you actually had the opportunity to listen to this, you know, this little show that I do called Bad Faith, uh, you'll see that Brianna Gray and I have a very close collaborative relationship. Did you, did you say collegiate? Would... Are you too collegiate? I said collaborative. Okay. Uh, collegiate? No, she's in. She well, she went to Harvard. That's I did not go to Harvard, so I don't. Th- I'm not in that class with her. Uh, but we are certainly friends and collaborators. If you... I I just like the thought of you as a specter haunting the uh, Brooklyn podcast scene. I'm a spe- I'm a spectrum haunting the Brooklyn podcast scene. <laughs> Speaking of spectrum, can can I actually turn off your vids because it's a little bit laggy? All right. All right. It's going to make this weird, but okay. Well, right. It's going to be, it's gonna be like we're, uh, we're potting in the dark together in like a spooky, uh, sexy way. You'll feel even more spectral now. You're just like an apparition floating there. There's a disembodied voice. Ooh, well, I, just, I just I feel disappointed because I have this beautiful setup right here. Like the, it's, it's golden hour. And uh, the, mm-hmm. you know, the you know sun's going down and the light is just perfect. It's hitting me beautifully, and uh, you know I was hoping maybe you could admire me. I'm I'm sorry to our listeners. You guys do not get to admire Virgil at Golden Hour because he has turned off his camera yeah, during just, this podcast recording session. Part of it was I just need to focus on like notes here, and I can't just keep looking at you. You know, yeah, it's too well, much. I mean, should I just turn it back on so I can look at myself? Is that yeah? Okay? You can do that. Okay. All right. Fine. <laughs> You can also oh, get a mirror is. or something, oh God, too. Look at that lighting. That's hitting me 
perfectly. Like, Holy sh! Oh god, this is why this is why Scorsese directs everything. <laughs> Sundown or sun up. Before, when you mentioned Harvard, when you said you weren't in that class, I had a great segue. I said, I was going to say, if you had gone to Harvard, you'd be qualified to write a class exploitation flick in the nineteen late nineteen sixties about a guy named Joe who's a racist machinist. But that time passed, so I missed it. Well, it's not a bad segue into talking about the topic of the day. Is it time to segue? I don't know. Maybe I cut off a, what was otherwise a nice conversation about Virgil's looks. I think it's time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we can circle back. <laughs> That's how shows usually work. Little- so uh, we have a full crew dun, 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 today uh, for a movie episode. And we're going to be discussing the film Joe from 1970. Uh, I should say this was Virgil's idea. So you want to tell us a little bit about why you selected this film? Oh, I thought you were going to ask how much money I'm going to demand for giving you this brilliant creative idea, (laughs) doing this labor for you. Uh, Why did I select the film Joe? At least I've read about it somewhere that I don't remember. Was was it it Staying Alive? It might have been Staying Alive. It might have been somewhere else. Uh, But I remember reading about I might, have, I might have just been me looking at Susan Sarandon's Wikipedia page and be like oh this is the first thing in her filmography better check it out oh this is wild <laughs> I've got to see this yeah and it was a great choice I had not heard about this movie and it's one of those films where for the first I don't know half or more of it I did not know what I was watching uh, and that's the kind of movie I like to watch especially on an edible so, you, you know, we watched this, uh, me, Annie, and Jamie, uh, Sean had already seen it before. And uh, we were, I remember, you know, I had not seen it. I just recommended us doing it together. And we were very on the fence for, I think, mm-hmm. the first 30, 40 minutes of the film. Because uh, that part of it is just very lurid and strange. And we don't really know what the moral bearing of the film is. And it kind of becomes clearer as it goes on, but it also becomes darker as it goes on. We, um, you guys watched it and I'd seen it before because I read about this um, about a decade ago in the book Staying Alive by Jefferson Cowie, a book that uh, both Matt and I have referenced a lot in History as a Weapon, a really formative text, I think, for me trying to understand what the hell happened in the 1970s, how this weird, amorphous, ill-defined thing called neoliberalism came to be. And so I watched it with some friends back in the day. I watched Joe with them. And uh, I actually did rewatch it for this eventually. Interesting movie. I think there's a lot of historical context uh, in there, but I think that it still says a lot today about the American, like, popular conception of what uh, the working class, especially the white working class, is in this country for better or for worse. Oh, yeah, there's an interesting uh, uh, schematization of class relations in the film, but as well, what's interesting about it is not just the film itself, as, I mean, you could read it as this is ironic kind of counterculture, making fun of making fun of hippies and making fun of the reactionaries who don't like hippies. But I think what's most interesting about it is the response to the film as a film that the right wing uh, 
the Wallace right wing uh, was really into and did not really pay a lot of attention to any any of these kinds of ironies or subtleties in the film. And there's a definite parallel between that and the current right wing. Oh, yeah. I mean, fucking Tyler Durden has nothing on this guy in terms of people taking the utterly wrong message from the movie, mm. just uh, running with it. It's a lot like the Joker film, which a lot of people misunderstand because they think it's about, you know, that this is a, this is a, a film about class resentment and, uh, uh, this, you know, uh, 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 anger that uh, uh, has no channel in modern society. Uh, whereas, you know, in reality, the Joker film is about an angry clown <laughs> and people just don't get that. And Joe is a very similar film in that regard. Uh, talking about reception, I read that the film was uh, on a very tight budget, $160,000, and then it was a smash hit. It ended up making, I think, $13 million, uh, in the in the theaters. And so Joe wasn't just popular by its own right. It wasn't just popular in kind of charging the imagination of people in this country. But it also, I think, began um, what I would call class exploitation films and, and uh, TV shows all through the 1970s, trying to sort of titillate people or trying to like say something about America in a very almost, almost pornographic way. Like the way, and we'll talk about this in the film, uh, the way that Joe uses racial slurs, the way that he and his and and uh, Bill Compton, his accessory, how they uh, denigrate and deride young people and especially hippies in the movie. I think it had it, it grabbed people a certain way because it said something about the divisions that existed in the country at that time. It also was literally Joe, pornographic. It was practically softcore porn. <laughs> it was uh, Joe. Oh, yeah. Joe was absolutely an exploitation film of the of the seventy genre of exploitation films. That's interesting. I've never heard the term class exploitation before, but or, I just made it up. Class exploitation. Well, or shall we say yeah. hard hat exploitation? <laughs> because there's a. I mean, the way that the film looks is very. I remember when we started watching it, and I remember thinking. Oh, this is a this is this is like the parts of a porno before they start fucking. Mm -hmm. Like it's just very wooden it's, and not very good. And lurid, you know. That's my other uh, thing about Joe. I do not consider it a good film. I think it's fun to watch, but it's it's, uh, it's like badly paced. Let's get into the plot. It's yeah, a cultural let's, artifact. No. Yeah, let's. It's uh, an artifact, and we're archaeologists here. Yes, we are. So let's let's put on our hard hats, you know, with a little light on top. Wait, are these and the the pith hats or the riot hard hats? Are we going to riot our um, way through this? We're, or we're excavating. Excavate. Right? Okay. We're archaeologists. We're excavationists, and you know, at the same time, perhaps we are construction workers building uh, cultural analysis, if you will, of this 1970 film. So our ironic hard hats. Let's yeah, let's yeah. do some classology. I mean, Sean's then. Sean's Israel, but ours are ironic. I give you honorary hard hats for this, Virgil. Just imagine on your head, there's an MSA hard hat. Okay. All right, and let's not talk about Sean and Israel, please. Let's uh, stay focused here. <laughs> All right. So uh, I have a little synopsis. I think I think it'd be helpful for people who haven't seen it. We kind of bang through the basic points of the plot, and uh, before opening it up to a wider discussion that sound good to you guys yes sure all right all right so basic facts about the film uh i should have mentioned gonna do that too stars peter boyle as joe uh dennis patrick as 
Compton and Susan Sarandon in her very first film role very as first. Melissa. Um, it prominently features her titties. Yep, very early yeah. on. You don't, have, don't have to wait too long to see those. Ooh, and yeah, she appears right to be like early I seventeen. Did, I, I didn't notice. I was watching. <laughs> she film. might have been like a seventeen and two months tops. Yeah. She was actually. I looked it up after. She was twenty four. That's wow. a, 23, 24, but pl- definitely playing younger. Yeah. All right, so she, now we can admit so that we like seeing her titties. She is a uh, she is a drug addicted ingenue who has fallen under the sway of her uh, hippie scumbag heroin addict boyfriend who can't fuck. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, and before we go on, Dennis Patrick and Peter Boyle, people should know for context because we wouldn't know this now, fifty years later. But at the time, they were both really. Not popular, but really common um, character actors had been both been in mm-hmm. a ton of westerns. Dennis Patrick, who plays this kind of upstanding upper middle class ad executive father guy, had been in by the time this film came out eighteen hundred television episodes before. So these were actors that people would have noticed around. They would have felt comfortable with. Indeed. Oh, and fun fact: um, when Peter Boyle saw that audience members were cheering the Violets and Joe. He refused to appear in any other film or TV that glorified violence, but he was also in Taxi Driver six years later, which owes a lot to this film. And he was in Young Frankenstein, which was a terrifying horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) He also famously, too, became uh, around this time, became friends with Jane Fonda and went to many anti-Vietnam protests himself. So he must have had very mixed feelings about the reception to this film. A, a real a real Nick Offerman situation. So let's let's get let's get through this plot. All right. So people don't even have to watch the film, but you should because it's great. So we open up on uh, Susan Sarandon and her, you know, super young titties uh, taking a bath with her layabout podcast boyfriend in the kitchen of the sort of shitty little uh neat apartment that they live in um this is the Virgil, kind of kid who doesn't have a bed frame for bed frame oh, discourse they, this is early bed frame discourse they oh. do not have a bed frame they live in this you know tiny little i wouldn't even call it a studio apartment there does not even seem to be a freaking toilet there it's a, it's a <laughs> hovel like, it's almost like yeah it's like it's it's, it's slum it's, and, yeah. uh, but you know, that's fine because they got each other and they've got a shitload of heroin <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah uh, and, you know, she's talking about, you know, well, I don't know, I want to do something, or my family, whatever, you know, the things that, you know, girlfriends talk to you about that you just ignore because you want to do heroin. <laughs> and he's talking about his big ambitions uh, to start a podcast, which in the 70s version was uh, to be a uh, painter and uh, to, you know, sell heroin so that he can buy more heroin and become a painter. So no, no. You know, it's just like podcasting. He is actually selling fake drugs to children, which is an even better analogy for heroin, for, I mean, podcasts, if you think about it. It is. F- fuck that one up. This is, this is getting a little too backstage, Jamie. You gotta pull it back. <laughs> so, all right. Anyway, um, like Sean said, they don't have a bed frame. Um, I'm not even sure if what they're sleeping on qualifies as a mattress. Um, we're not supposed to like this guy. You know, he's like a junkie, piece of shit, whatever, whatever. Although I will note that I was totally attracted to him because he is hot. 
and he looks good in hats, uh, selling fake drugs to children is a job of sorts. And he just wants to do heroin and ignore her, which I think is super hot, but we're not supposed to like him. So he seemed to treat, yeah, he treat, he treats her very poorly and it's intimated though, not really shown that she's kind of a runaway. You know, I don't think it's ever established what her age is in the film, but she's like she's like a young girl who has left her upper class existence in order to join the counterculture. And she ends up with this guy under his thrall and just ends up in this shitty, you know, slum, like doing drugs with him and like freaking out. And the first oh, yeah. horrible, unconstructive existence. Uh, but I will also uh, echo that. I also thought he was hot. He is a good looking guy. <laughs> and, but really, the, this, this whole first part of the movie with this relationship uh, until she, she overdoses and ends up in a hospital, you're thinking somebody needs to do something about this horrible man. Who's, <laughs> and so they're setting you up for what happens next. We're not, yeah, this isn't a romantic depiction of the counterculture. This is immediately shown to you, like the bad side. Oh yeah, uh, being addicted to heroin because you know you only see the romantic parts of it. (laughs) But uh, this is like right right out of the gate. Oh, this is not good or healthy. Yeah, no, nothing, nothing good in this counterculture. It's 1970. You know, they really, really lingered over the shot of him fixing. Like at least like the fir- like three out of the first four minutes of the film was just him like fixing a shot, and they're just like slow motioning him practically taking it. No, That's I mean, how you it know is, it's, it's a Lorik film. Like, at, at the same time that you're like supposed to think these people are shitty degenerates who deserve to die, it's also like, but look at these titties, and you know, I, look at them taking a bath. Well, I asked this uh, in the room when we watched it. Has there ever had there up to that point? This film's nineteen seventy, I think. Had there been up to that point such an explicit depiction of shooting up? That's a good. Yes, in the the film nineteen sixty three, the connection, I believe, which was a a downtown like a West Village stage play um, that uh, probably used actual shooting up in the play, and then they made a film about it. Um, that probably also uses actual shooting up, and it, you know it shows like the uh, a realistic uh, you know j- uh, junky scene, like they're in a you know loft and they're they're trying to scrape money together and they're talking about jazz and stuff. But also, it's that this is back when that was kind of cool. Like uh, tons of kids were moving to New York to be beatnik junkies, right. and that seemed like kind of the way to be. Um, but at, in 1970. That, uh, you know, the counterculture was no longer being portrayed or even thought of as as cool. It had already turned very dark. This is a relic of the era where young people fantasize about moving to New York to do a lot of drugs. <laughs> yeah, no, nobody does that anymore, luckily. Well, it, I mean, I'll get into this a little bit later, but like there was a huge sort of, you know, gentrification wave in the in the East Village between 66 and 68 um, where, you know, prices were going up, uh, like it was just tons of hippies and counterculture people moving in. Um, but in 68, there was something called the Groovy Murders. And uh, I'll discuss that a little bit later on. But that turned that all back in New York uh, the way the, the Manson murders would in California. Interesting. Groovy, groovy murders. So, yeah, back to the plot. So um, Susan Sarandon's character, Melissa, she takes some drugs and she feels weird 
and she goes and finds her boyfriend and she's like, Hey, I feel weird. And he's like, here, have some more drugs. And then she ODs and winds up in the hospital. He, uh, he puts on his going out outfit, which, you know, uh, as he's doing it, I'm like, he looks whack as hell. He looks like a cop, but then he completes the outfit. He's wearing an air force jacket and a cowboy hat. And honestly, it works. I cannot yeah. mm-hmm. complain. No, uh, but it he does works. look like yes, a, a someone actively trying to be a shady character. And his deal is he sells fake drugs to high school students. Victimless Which, crime, really. Yeah, I mean, he calls himself the Lone Ranger. It's all very good. Calls himself the Lone Ranger. That's not that's. <laughs> Which is like if you're imagine if you're that's not victim free. That's like, not victim you, free. You, I feel like not, a victim that, after that hearing that. a lot of red flags, right? <laughs> yeah. The the writer of this film, Norman Wexler, um, is is well known for uh, having a good ear and uh, yeah, keeping to his nose to the ground. And writing very real uh, dialogue, if not just real dialogue that he's had or people that he's met. So it's, I got the impression that uh, that Wexler or someone else who wrote the film met, uh, bought some bunk drugs from the Lone Ranger. <laughs> it's a very realistic thing that could have happened. That's a good explanation for the film. This is his way of using art to get back at that mm-hmm. asshole who ripped him off. Oh, yeah. Well, Norman Wexler wrote Saturday Night Fever, Serpico, uh, Mandingo, and Joe. And he, uh, if you've ever heard uh, a Bob Zamuda interview, he uh, mostly talks about this guy, plus Andy Kaufman. Oh, so. yeah. And Andy Kaufman apparently based a character on him who's like some kind of shithead lounge lizard. And um, yeah, Zamuda admitted that it was based on him during an interview with Mark Maron. Fun fact. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, too, as we'll talk about later, um, Wexler himself had gone to Harvard and he was an ad guy before he wrote this film. And so this film is written is is a, is a depiction of like Lower East Side hippie junkie culture on the one hand and like hard hat working class like backlash culture on the other hand but written by a guy who went to harvard uh and and was like upper middle class himself so i think that shows a bit about how when we introduce joe we're going to try to understand the ways that like the working class is depicted within this movie oh yeah i mean that makes sense because uh i really got kind of a don draper vibe from compton when you see him in his fancy office I, i guess that's just what all like bougie ass motherfuckers were like back then but okay so um she ODs, she's in the hospital, and of course she has some rich parents who really rich go to her. Well, they're like they're petty bourgeoisie. Like, no, they have P- a fucking like fireplace. <laughs> I want to say he's he's like literally an ad executive. The father's like has like a corner office. They have a house with a fireplace in it on uh up uh, uh, I don't know. Up yeah, well, he says his income at one point. I, I forgot what it was. Okay, sixty thousand. Sixty grand. It's like he's a, he's a top tier PMC. Oh, that's he's, podcast he's money. A PMC, <laughs> which like, he, uh, which he, fits. he also gives a vibe. I mean, he also gives the vibe of you know, Northeast Protestant old money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. would just like, I, his fits, affectation. I would, it fits better into my analysis of right wing populism for him to be petty bourgeoisie. So let's go with that. I would have you know that uh, sixty thousand dollars a year in twenty twenty one money means he makes four hundred and twelve thousand dollars a year. Is that like upper PMC there? Maybe it is. It, it, it could be. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's that's upper middle class. Okay. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. 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 yeah it is. Definitely in New York City. Yeah. 
So uh, let's see. We got some rich parents. They're dirty PMCs. Uh, they go to her junky apartment to get her stuff. And the dad, Mr. Compton, who, by the way, really looks like Jair Bolsonaro in a very distracting way. Um, and, you know, as we'll find out, has a lot in common with him. Mm -hmm. uh, he runs into her fuckboy junky boyfriend there. And he doesn't go there with the intention of killing him, we don't think. But he freaks out and he kills him, I think, with his bare hands, if I recall. Aaron, like, he sees how his daughter has been living and is just, like instantly disgusted. He's like, he's like, he's like, you don't even have a bed frame. Ah, don't. he's got. Yeah, he's got the reaction that I think the audience is supposed to have at the in, in the very, very beginning of the film, which is, oh, this is, you know, this is depraved. This is not healthy. And, and, and except he actually does something about it. And don't forget, if you um, if you the, the thing that actually sets the father off, that sets Compton off, is the kid, the junkie kid, the Lone Ranger, says to him like, "Hey, your your chick's groovy, man. You know, she's got a real <laughs> daddy thing. She's got a real edible thing, man. You ever think about fucking your daughter?" And that's when he grabs him and starts oh, smashing man. his fucking Who head does that remind against you the of? wall. I I gotta say, like that's. That's like this is a very interesting junction of the film. I mean, this is the event that sets off, like sets in motion the entire plot of the film. Yeah. And in one way, it's like you know the the father starts beating the shit out of the boyfriend, and the boyfriend's taunting him, laughing at him. And I guess you're supposed to think, oh well, the boyfriend's he's like he's like on heroin, he's on junk, and he like cannot feel this. Uh, so the father just like keeps pounding the shit out of him. Uh, until he dies like just straight up mulls him to death and there's a little bit of um okay this is like you know this is righteous this is the guy who like sent my daughter down a bad path like i you know i i created uh the circumstances for her to have uh, uh, some kind of dignified life but it's also a little bit of okay he's you know he's threatened that his you know his daughter went off and did something else that his his daughter's you know he's no longer in control of his daughter's sexuality oh yeah, yeah i mean and, he sees the photo of them like naked together at the yes, wall and that yes. makes him mad so I wasn't yeah. really sure of like what to think about what I had seen so far or what the movie was trying to say. It almost seemed like a lifetime movie. And then we meet Joe. Joe. Oh, yeah. The titular so, right. character um, Joe. If you're thinking that the first word that comes out of this character's Joe, character Joe's mouth in the bar is not the N-word, you, my friend, would be wrong. <laughs> it might have been the second or third, but well, it was, was first, the first, first sentence. sentence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he goes to the bar. Yeah, he messes up the apartment, you know, makes it look like drug deal gone wrong. And on the correct assumption that the cops aren't going to look that far into it because, you know, they want to kill hippies, too. Yeah. Um, he goes to the bar. He meets the titular Joe, who, as Sean said, is engaging in an N-word laden rant <laughs> about the uh, degeneracy of society, complaining about uh, black people on welfare and all the quote unquote orgies, orgies. that these kids are having. You know, just like a really cool guy that you want to get to know better. He's Don't forget black people can get credit cards. Yeah. 41% uh, of the liberals are gay. 
Yeah. They're all queer. <laughs> That's true now, but back then that was a yeah. horrible thing to say. Now, Sean, you're, do, you're doing Bernie voice. Yeah, I don't know why he <laughs> came out as Bernie. He is not a Bernie Sanders <laughs> he's, he, he's, folks. he's not a Jew. He's not well, very far from that. He's John, uh, his name is Joe Curran. He's a good Irishman like from Astoria. Like an old, all old working class New York dudes kind of sound the same. Is he supposed to be Irish? I thought he was supposed to be Italian just because he's very uh, yeah, dark features. His, his last name, I, I, I recall, was Curran, which is a good Irish name. That is a good he's Irish a, name. He's an ethnic white, He's an ethnic say. white from Astoria. Very he's, much an Archie yeah. Bunker type. He's, he's the classic uh, JFK voting, big machine voting ethnic white who uh, is, thinks the civil rights movement went too far and Dr. King had <laughs> what he got coming to him. Well, right. he. this is a time period when those people were rapidly abandoning the Democratic Party for the Republican Party and forming this new coalition with I wonder guys why. like I wonder Compton. what happened. I wonder what happened in those six years. So, yeah. So, um, this Compton... Was, I don't want to... I don't want to go past... I don't want to, like, uh, go on without, without pointing out that while that is true, while the... Uh, the silent majority coalition is in the beginning of its formation in 1970 yet you still, you didn't actually that, that transition of white working class urban ethnics away from the democratic party away from the post deal liberal post war new deal liberal order had not, wasn't completed yet. It was in the process, but well, there was still very much like inchoate and you like a lot of, um, Evidence from that time shows that, that working class people were very conflicted because they still stood by the sort of New Deal values and uh, their unions and uh, whatever. And they had this sort of generalized, like abstract desire for equality. But at the same time, all of these like busing and uh, the anti-Vietnam War movement is kind of like pulling them in this different direction. And well, Bussing he was in the, the vanguard, f- let's just say. He was in the vanguard, You're right, that's right. That's a good way of putting it. Because Bussing wasn't the fight yet. I mean, this all culminated in uh, Reagan in 1980. So this is at the, this is, this is a very early depiction yeah. of yeah. that kind of guy. And they, he likes Nixon, too. Like, they look at the Nixon poster, yeah, and on, yeah. it's like, ooh, would you buy a used car from this guy? And he's like, like of yeah. course I would. He's the president. Who better to buy a used car from? <laughs> that was, <laughs> That was pretty good. So, yeah, this guy's he's fucking drunk. And he's like, yeah. F- uh, oh, Compton is drunk, too, I should say. And Compton is like, yeah, fuck those hippies. I just killed one bull. I mean, just kidding. Um, but at this point, Joe is like, oh, word. So uh, the next day he puts two and two together when he sees it on the news that someone killed a super hot fuck boy. Yeah, oh Joe, my God. Joe figures out reading the daily news on the subway to his machinist job where he stands, as he says, in front of a hot furnace all day long. Uh, he figures out that it was the rich guy that he met at the bar who had actually killed this hippie that now the news is talking about. Yeah, so he uh, he calls Compton up at his fancy Don Draper office and he's like, hey, man, come to the bowling alley. Let's be bros. And uh, Compton goes because he's worried that he's about to be blackmailed. But Joe really just wants to hang out and do QAnon shit. <laughs> what? What QAnon shit? There's this, yeah, there's this very funny scene. Uh, Joe shows up at the office and uh, the secretary's actually tell this guy to fuck off. He says he met you in a bar. And, you know, there's that look of realization in the father's face. Uh, 
And then uh, Joe just like takes him to meet his, yeah, his bowling buddies who are all, you know, there's like guys like, you know, working guys who are, uh, you know, they're all riffing. Uh, I remember there was this one line where I was like, oh, you don't bowl, but you golf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, they got like, his ass. Like, yeah, that's more like that's some fucking <laughs> like what less physically intensive action than <laughs> yeah, no, walking like, up to a go- lane and throwing a ball. <laughs> like. Bowling is literally a poor man's golf. Well, I, I want to know that the best bowlers that I've ever met, like they don't have like the beautiful athleticism or form. They straight up just walk up and just throw the ball. I it, mean, I do the, like the between the legs thing, but yeah. yeah by, um, by the time the bowling alley scene comes in, you we've really set ourselves up like uh, similar to like men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Like the working class is like this, you know, Joe's like this, <laughs> yeah. but Compton, the upper class is like this. And there's all these million, like different sort of iterations of the same thing. This like vast divide between the white working class and the white upper middle class. And for Which a little can only be bridged by the magic of right wing populism and just sheer violence. Um, yeah. yeah. But for, for a little bit, it seems like this is a, uh, like a, a snob and a slob get stuck together like yeah. planes, trains, and automobiles or that. I, th- I thought of that movie Creep, that Duplass movie. So it was yeah. just, and yeah. you thought... It's a, it's some real dude's rock shit. Well, you think that Compton is like very uncomfortable with the situation and he's just going along with it so he's not, he doesn't get uh, blackmailed. But we, we slowly see that Compton uh, really ap- thinks that this uh, likes that this guy appreciates what he's done, and they actually have formed like a personal and political bond yeah. around this act of murder. Yeah, and and we could see here like the cross class alliance that exists in these right wing movements, right? Like like Virgil said when we were watching it, uh, it's basically like baked Alaska and the guy who stole the podium or uh, Mitt Romney meeting Matt <laughs> Gates. It's yeah. It's never Trump conservative meeting a MAGA mania. Yeah. Right. And, it was very uh, much that. Yeah. At this point in the film, I, I, I want to say I found it very hard to read Compton at this point in the film because he doesn't show uh, this much um, outward feelings of guilt like he murdered someone yeah Yeah. he did something that is like totally like he does not view himself as the sort of individual who would actually kill someone and there's not a lot in the film that depicts him kind of working out his feelings or the 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 sort of um what do you call it uh the the sort of mental contradiction about that which is i'm a you know i'm a responsible blue blood i'm like george herbert walker bush i'm not i you know i i'll like read the national review and not agree with everything in it but i'm not a goldwater george wallace type populist psycho who would actually do something and joe comes in and says you did something you did the deed and that's badass and that means you're cool and it's it's unclear at this point, I think, whether Compton is just patronizing Joe. I think right. to some degree he is because he goes, oh, OK, I've let you know, I've showed my hand too much. And now Joe has enough to like put me in actual federal prison for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or if he's undergoing some kind of, you know, uh, political manipulation that's 
you know, Joe comes in and says, what I did was good. Well, then, you know what? Maybe well, maybe what I did is good. Yeah. Maybe it is good to just exterminate hippies. Yeah, it's and, like the uh, the dark side of the thing that we always talk about where people's consciousness can be transformed in the course of activity and struggle. Whether and, that struggle is, you know, burning down a police station, uh, looting a store, or killing a hippie with your bare hands. And this is the point of the film where the perspective shifts a little bit. Uh, where we're more focused on Joe than Compton's, you know, his, his internal psychological struggles about his deed. And there's a lot about, there's a lot where we meet Joe and his home life. Yeah. And we see him playing with his guns and listening to his anti-hippie music. Yeah. And he does feel like a... Uh, he, it feels like I'm trying to think of the name of the guy, the clock tower shooter at Texas. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Frank I'm, not, I'm not sure if like this is an archetype at that point. Uh, I mean, like probably. guys sitting in his basement, cradling his guns oh, and like, contemplating. I mean, it's, people. it's, like it's possible this movie was like ahead of the curve in some ways because, you know, it was before a taxi driver. It was before um, all in the family, which I guess is like a funny comedy version of Joe on some level. Like uh, a, a scene that really illustrates Joe's mindset is he goes and sits in his man cave alone uh, drinking a beer and just takes out a gun uh, and he's got like a Confederate flag hanging up over him and he just sits there with his gun drinking the beer listening to a song called Hey Joe not the song made famous by the Yardbirds and Jimi Hendrix about uh, a man murdering his his wife or girlfriend but a, a new version of Hey Joe about a guy like Joe who is a veteran who's gotten back from war and is so disgusted by the hippies and the flag burners uh, that he's ready to go to war again against the enemy within. Well, this that we were talking about violence and the the binding of these two men by violence. Um, you know, as we see as the film progresses, they were both bound initially by a different, more organized violence, that of uh, the World War, because it, it's implied that they both fought. It might have been Korea, it might have been the Second World War, but that Is idea it? that Joe has to go back and fight the war again at home. I mean, it's. It, is that the case? Because I did not catch up on any implication, and I was thinking about it. Joe does not seem like someone who fought in any war. I agree, but the, the lyric of the song is, Hey Joe, don't I want to make you go back to war once more? Hey Joe, why the devil did we go to war before? What the hell for? So he he may have not gone to war, but he might identify. He might yeah. be a stolen that's valor. My, that's thing. my point. And he's yeah. definitely my, racist against the Japanese. This it is, could be for unrelated reasons. But so. this isn't a guy who I don't read Joe as a guy who. Uh, you know, like he fought in a, a war that everyone forgot. He's not like a um, lost generation Korean War. Or what is it? The lost generation is it, uh, the silent generation. The, that was the silent like generation. I thought the silent yeah. generation was before the greatest no, generation. Silent generation came up too too young to fight in the Second right. World War. Yeah. And they fought gotcha. in Korea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He seems like a silent generation guy who did not actually fight in any war. He didn't fight in Korea because, and the reason why I'm two with that is because in his den there is there isn't any indication. Mm. That he fought in any war. Yeah, that's true. A guy like that who's this gung-ho right-wing guy who fantasizes about violence, um, 
he's more the like he if he had fought in the Korean War, he would have medals displayed and like photographs and shit like that. You don't see any of that. Oh, you're right. He's more a guy who is like, yeah, I would have gone and I would I would have. <laughs> yeah, this is why it's stealing valor. Instead, I just got a job in a factory and that's been my life so far. So this movie is really ahead of his time because this is like really one of those guys who just has a, you know, sits around with his AR-15 fantasizing about murdering Antifa. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah that's exactly it. And I don't know if that was always a kind of guy. I mean, I think there there was, you know, even like in the, like after John Brown, there was a spate of like basically anti-abolitionist like anti-Antifa hysteria where they thought the abolitionists were going to come and raid every plantation. Uh, but this was like really one for one, like the the modern day paranoid conservative with violent fantasies. Well, it was, yes, it, and it was after I, the reason why I suggested it. So I mean, that's exactly why. And I think I suggested right after the um, the one six uh, when I was talking to Jamie, I said, you know, we should watch this movie because mm. it's very relevant to what's happening today, where you have you know guy like a lot of guys like Joe who are fantasists of you know political violence of you know i'm you know i'm gonna you know one of these days is you know there's gonna be a revolution and i'm gonna fight in it and we're gonna you know we're gonna get rid of we're gonna get rid of the commies and we're gonna get rid of the the professors doing critical race theory what the fuck they're <laughs> mad about and you know we're gonna get rid of uh the you know congress and Oh, not to mention, you know, all the corrupt union presidents, because he definitely takes and a yes. shot at the president of his union, yeah. his own union, yes. representing yeah. his interests, which kind of made me think about Blue Collar, which we and, also did an episode about. And he is someone, but he's like, you know, he's he's not someone who would do that. Like if Joe left on his own devices, would just be sitting in that bar, uh, screaming the N word <laughs> all the time. And, yeah, well, he needed uh, and, and the like, petty bourgeoisie he need, to like, activate He him. sees this guy who is like, for all intents and purposes, like someone who's like who makes like what ten times what he makes minimum, and uh, like is, and by all means represents uh, a boss, someone right. of a different class, someone who tells you what to do, and is like enthralled by it and impressed by it. Like you actually did the thing that I just sit around and say that I'm going to do. Yeah, he's a fucking but, bootlegger. But I don't know. Um, I don't know if uh, Wexler, when he writes this, had this in mind. But of course, the original violence, whether or not they went to go fight in the wars themselves, the original violence wasn't simply like killing one or 14 hippies, you know, because you hate them. The original violence is the war that they keep referring back to whatever the war that might be. So it's about America as this violent imperial place where like there's always this reference back to the last war that we fought and for valor, but also in order to do social cleansing. So I think there's like this implicit violence within American culture that it's picking up on. Yeah, and even if he didn't fight in the war, he still kind of takes the credit for it. So anyway, uh, back to the plot. Um, Let's see. I don't want to undersell this pretty funny scene where uh, Compton and his wife go over to Joe's house and they're like, oh yeah, we love your shitty house and the shitty food your wife makes. Um, and Joe actually gropes Compton's wife either before or after he shows him his gun down in the man cave. The fascist man cave. Joe has yeah, like that like- whole man cave like devoted to, uh, to violence and guns. Yeah, unlike Compton, there's no subtext with this guy. Not at all, yeah. No, that, that's interesting because uh, we, we talked about already 
how we're trying to understand like subconsciously what's going on, or at least in the inner mind of, uh, of Compton. But with Joe, it's all out on the surface. You know, he's very much not a complex character. Yeah, no. Which said something uh, about how the working class is viewed, at least by the writer, if not just like society at large. It, it is definitely a bit of a classist <laughs> film, I will say. Well, Joe, I mean, you know, in this, you know, we're, ta- we're talking the midpoint of the movie. And like up to this point, the movie's not been about Joe. And Joe is a very strange character. He kind of is. He, he kind of just is a parody of like right wing assholes who talk a lot of shit and have no idea what they're talking about. I think, you know, he develops a kind of like some kind of interiority based on you just learning more aspects of his life. But when he's actually having conversations with, uh, with Compton or with his wife, uh, you know, he, like like you said, he just has the one mode. There's not anything that's like, oh, Joe has you know other motives going on. Or Joe oh, has no. conflicted he's just, he's feelings. Joe, he's just yeah. a, you know, he's just telling it how it is, and that's kind of you know, and that's kind of the premise of the movie. It's like, hey, that's Joe. He's just a guy who tells it how it is. That's how they marketed the movie. Well, this is the only way that men know how to express their emotions in the form of you know anger and violence towards hippies. Men would much rather kill hippies than go to therapy. And I think that's fucking disgusting. Well, you do wonder if he's for real about it, or if this is just he, you know, yeah. respects Compton because. Uh, he's for real, but Joe maybe deep down knows that Compton did something he never could. Mm. But then we find out he can. And oh, does. boy, like, can the, <laughs> like the modern version of Joe would not have gone to the 1-6 protest. He would have just posted about it. Yeah. Like he maybe. would just post shit like, like yeah, the tree of uh, liberty needs to be watered by the blood of patriots. Oh, he's the guy. He would have been one of the guys that got there and just like milled around and didn't know what the fuck no, to do. Like ev- I could see him. Everybody knows this guy down on the job site. He's the guy that's like the loud dude, always talking shit. You can never get him to shut the fuck up. Nobody ever wants to talk about politics, but he's always talking about one thing or the other. He's just like a loudmouth prick, man. Like, uh, so, may- so maybe Joe's the real podcaster. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe it's but not the boyfriend. I don't think that, that I, I think it's true though. I don't think that Joe without being radicalized by Compton, you know, without in this instance, the working class being radicalized by the violence of the upper class. If Joe goes off and does anything on his own, I think that's the important aspect. Well, that's like the central question is who's radicalizing whom, who's playing whom. And that's what I was completely lost by in the middle of this film and the film, like, you know, the pacing's kind of weird in this film. Uh, yeah, it's the 70s. I, yeah, I, I know. It's, it's the 70s. They didn't learn how to make good cinema yet. Uh, you know, A24 uh, did not exist yet. Uh, Pixar did not exist yet. <laughs> they didn't know how to tell stories. I couldn't tell who's radicalizing who. Is it Joe radicalizing Compton into uh, forgoing his, you know, uh, polite upper class lifestyle into becoming a like you know a real deal like right wing radical, or was it Compton by having murdered someone uh, radicalizing Joe, who's like in his views like um, like his views aren't very deep, like he's he's kind of a, like Jejun, he, like he's just like you know pissed off and ranting. 
Well, I think it's supposed to be confusing because it was a confusing time. And I think the movie is very nihilistic in that sense. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, I called it classist before, but like nobody comes off well in this movie. No, I don't. I wouldn't call it a classist film. I mean, so like the one scene that, you know, we just skipped over it. But like there's one scene that I found very interesting is when uh, Joe is getting drinks with Compton for the first time. You know, they like could get good and sloshed. And Joe is just really excited to talk about how much they make. Yeah. Yeah. Like the conditions of their work. And Compton is like, yeah, I, I don't get a wage. I get a salary. <laughs> yeah, he's like, like how much paid. per hour do you make? And he's yeah. like, oh, haha. I get paid and Joe's by the like, year. yeah, I get four bucks an hour and it sucks. I fucking hate my job. And, and that's when he goes off about guys the are union. Fucking killing me. He says when when uh, when Compton says, oh, I make $60,000 a year, he said, wow, that's like as much as the president of my union gives himself. That's a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and there's like an honest, there's honestly kind of an earnestness about joe in that scene like yeah i i I want to talk about this kind of thing i want to talk about how much we wake but uh it's as much uh it's as much as much a like a fish out of water sort of like um curiosity that you have from from uh from joe about the upper class as compton has about the working class they're both kind of feeling each other out they don't have anything in common even when uh when uh compton brings joe to the to the uh, fancy bar, right? He's like they're they're kind of like playing with this idea that there's a huge gulf between them because it's really real, and they've never really interacted with somebody like that before. Yeah, he's like uh, it, on some level by telling Joe how much money he makes, he's like betraying his class a little bit, and they're they're saying like guys like us got to stick together, like they're forming this magical. A uh, cross-class alliance of fucking white dudes that uh, we have seen do many horrible things and continue to do them. Yeah, who are uh, united by their dislike of hippies and black people. Yeah, so it's all it's cross-class and it's it's white, but it's also generational. Yeah. I mean, they're not yeah. quite the same age, but this was this was something that really resonated at the time was not just the politics of it. I think like the Nixon, the Confederate flag and all that stuff was thrown in to like be heavy handed that this is not a pro Joe movie. It's more of a pro counterculture movie, but definitely the idea of like the hatred and desire for violence towards the youth movement um, is, is uh, on that. This is like, that's the moral of the movie is like, you want to kill these counterculture people, but this is the next generation and there are kids. You really think it's pro counter? I feel like it's a nihilistic movie. Like I don't think that anyone. I is think it's good. more sympathetic to the counterculture, but it constructed this character of Joe, who is more than just a collection of class signifiers. I think it considers I, itself to be somewhat journalistic. To be quite honest, I don't think that it's pro or anti anything. And I think that Andy's right. We shouldn't forget the generational aspect to it, which is what probably resonated people with people more than the fact that, like, Joe is a hero for saying the N-word. It's that he's oh, a yeah. hero. He's, for the people that thought he was a hero, and apparently people were clapping when Joe and uh, Compton do their violence at the end. Well, yeah, let's go like, well, let's, let's yeah, to keep that. Going. It's, definitely, uh, it's definitely channeling the, the zeitgeist at some levels. Well, right? so, uh, let, me, let me explain what happens next, because I think what happens next does show that it's pro-counterculture, because the two, uh, so, you know, uh, Compton's uh, daughter uh, comes back from the hospital and she overhears uh, him 
uh, t- explain to his wife the situation with Joe and about how this guy found out about him killing uh, the, the Lone Ranger. And so his daughter runs away. And so then Joe and Compton go out trying to find yeah. uh, the daughter. Yeah. And they oh, yeah, go and- they go into uh, the, the, the macrobiotic uh, red bamboo <laughs> vegan bar. And then they, they go to the like the electric circus, you know, some like Andy Warhol kind of art bar club. And then they go to an orgy, like a psychedelic orgy. Orgy. And yeah, they go to an, or- an actual orgy <laughs> and they sleep with two young women and and smoke weed. And yeah. the the whole thing is showing like, and, and they're very happy. This is like the best they've ever bonded the whole right. time is like actually going and living the counterculture and having free love and doing drugs and, you know, everybody accepts them and likes them. And like invites them and to the party and stuff. I mean, this is a pro level. counterculture movie. It's showing that people need this kind of liberation, even the people that hate it. Well, and that's yeah, such a that's such an important scene because if the movie ends there, and we will obviously finish the movie, but if it ends there, Joe and Compton realized the benefits of the counterculture right. of smoking weed and having orgies and like just letting mm-hmm. loose and relaxing. But of course, well, it doesn't end there. <laughs> yeah, no, getting a little, a little sexual mutual aid from the swinging chicks. Yeah. Um, right. We should. We should mention uh, there's a little foreshadowing when Melissa runs away. Before she runs away, she says, are you going to kill me too? And at that moment, you you know, yeah. like, yes. <laughs> yes, he is. Yeah, there's a lot of the film where, and this is why, you know, despite criticism, this is the pacing of the film, where Melissa is just an afterthought because she's the first person <laughs> we meet in the movie. And then she's kind of a non-entity for the rest of the film. And then the focus kind of shifts to just the relationship between Joe and Compton, which is, you know, kind of it's just kind of weird for a while it's like okay yeah. we're just watching them hang out and there's not really a strong political valence well it's, it's susan it. sarandon they probably only had her for one day they, well i mean she, well, was she wasn't that famous i know yet. i'm kidding yeah they yeah they <laughs> oh, right, uh, right. this was this was uh this was young susan sarandon she uh you know they probably had her for three days honestly andy <laughs> uh and i i you know i i also want to note this before we move on uh, so there's a scene where Joe and his wife have Compton and his wife over for dinner and Compton's wife is like, why are we, why are we doing this? This fucking sucks. And she's like very like blue blooded. She's like wearing uh dinner gloves, like that kind of shit. And Joe is trying to put on airs. Joe and his wife do not seem to have kids. If they do, like they're not in the picture. They're not in the picture. He does complain Joe, about his kid running off and buying a motorcycle. Or something oh, like that. So, oh, so Joe's I kid, that. Good catch. Okay. Joe's yeah. kids are so, that also, kid was easy rider. Mm-hmm. So Joe's so like Joe Probably. and and like age wise, Joe feels like mid forties to me. And he's okay. So it's like kids like out of the coop, and like it's just him and his wife. And his wife is this like anxiety case who clearly has an awful time living with this like man who treats her very bad. Yeah, she's an Edith Bunker without the comedic aspects. Yeah, it's like a not funny all in the family. It's more like uh, just like screaming, shut the fuck up uh, all in the family. And they can like not even bridle their uh, basic hatred for each other uh, when there's company, especially like the nice rich company. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, these, uh, it's not great. It's like, oh yeah, that's what this would be like in real life. This fucking sucks. Um, I should also note like the, uh, the fact that they still, you know, they, they end up in this counterculture, like having a good time kind of reminds me of how older people behave towards millennials today, 
like the boomer obsession with AOC, you know, like we hate these degenerate young socialists, but we're still going to jerk off to them. Like we, we hate them so much. Like it's, there's a lot of, a lot of, I don't want to say love, but definitely some like weird sexual shit. Yeah. The, like there. the, what everyone said about hipsters is like, oh, they're so young and hot with their skinny jeans and just, <laughs> just discuss. I hate hipsters. So the lesson, yeah, the lesson of the film is Joe and Compton for kind of a flimsy reason, uh, journeying into the depths of hippie culture. Yeah. And first they go to a, uh, I don't know what you call this. It's just like a, it's just like a Japanese restaurant where you sit on the floor. No, it's a macrobiotic Macro. restaurant. Yeah. I don't know what macrobiotic means. They're explaining all of the food. It's like, I don't know. It was some trendy shit. Just means the, large food, right? The like I'm eating a big thing. <laughs> it's like, it was like the pre-vegan movement. It was, it was like a Japanese health trend based on brown rice. And yeah, like basically it was, it was that. Basically cultural what appropriation. Makes mac- what makes it macro? Uh, my mom can explain it to you guys because she was macrobiotic for a little while when she was a swinging right. chick in the 1960s. Yes, this is going to be a two-part right. episode. And, and now we'd <laughs> yeah. like to welcome no, Jamie's part, my mom. mom will be the guest. Yeah, but I, like, I want to fucking put her in the hot seat. All right, what is well, macrobiotic like, like he, He's explaining like this food to him and Joe's like, hey, that's Jap food. Uh, which, you know, like to add another crime onto the crimes of the hippies, they're doing cultural appropriation. They're doing, yeah. I mean, they go into this restaurant that I guess is supposed to be groovy and weird, but it just looks like an annoying restaurant that your friends might take you to. Yeah, they're like sitting on the floor. Well, that part's There's weird. There's no booze. It looks exactly like the, the Christian Emil place in the Lower East Side. If anyone's ever been there. No, I haven't. I have not. Uh, but yeah, that's a funny scene. And then like, yeah, the fucking orgy scene is well, well, prominently on, featured in the trailer. Well, there's one. There's one scene before that. They go to a thrift store. They just oh, they yeah. just go to like a, a fucking like uh, uh, they go to like the Beacon's closet of its time, <laughs> and they're like, "Oh my god, they're selling beads. This is weird." <laughs> and it's like not even like they're not even trying to sell the. At this point, the film is not trying to sell the uh, fish out of water aspect. It's more like they're just at a boring store and. Like they're confused by the things that they see. And one was, as you mentioned earlier, Jamie, the uh, Nixon poster, the famous one saying, would you buy a used car from this man? And they're like, of course we would. He's the president. So, this, so like that whole bit is just played for laughs. But then they go to a bar, which is you know, oh, kind of, yeah. it's just a bar. And there's like hippies at the other table who are like, hey, hey, are you hip for some dope or some shit like that? <laughs> And they, uh, they, the hippies invite them back to their, you know, the hippie apartment. Their groovy their, pad. The pad, yeah. yeah. To, to like the version of a Bushwick apartment uh, from, the ni- from the year 1970. And, you know, we're talking like uh, red lights, beads, a lot of beads. I, don't, I, n- I never knew why beads was such a Yeah, thing. what's with beads? Why beads? Again, it, we're going to need to ask my mom. Should I have beads in my apartment? Well, everybody was really like fetishistic of of India and Hinduism and yeah. Buddhism and stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit of like yeah, there's a bit of like you know, neo Orientalism uh, in that shit. Uh, which, that comes from the I mean, beatniks. I don't know. I mean, maybe if you do a lot of acid, you're like, oh, Indian people just have it right. That's what the Beatles maybe did. That, maybe, yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. Like maybe that's just something inherent to doing acid. You realize like, oh, the Hindu religions are probably right. So we like we meet the hippies a little bit at the bar, and this is, there's this intimation that the women are selling sex, and the men are just sort of benefiting. From yeah, they're that. like, you want to turn a trick. Yeah, basically. And so these aren't just like 
you know, it's like friends hanging out, like they've got like some kind of nefarious scheme. They're fucking uh, degenerates. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say they're degenerates, but they're they're definitely uh, they definitely want something from our heroes. That's yeah, more like, than just uh, you know expanding their mind. Yeah, they're they're not just doing free love. Like they've uh, they've got an agenda. You know, it's it's they, like the the Antifa book. You know, like you think that these hippies are fey and effeminate and nice, but some of them are dangerous drug dealers and pimps. So that makes me feel a little better about not being invited to this party because <laughs> I feel like if I was hanging out at that bar, I'd be pissed off that, oh, these cool people don't want to hang out with me. They want to hang out with these two old men. Yeah, so they're like, hey, come back to our groovy pad. And there's this scene, very explicit sex scene where they like smoke some dope. And there's like some sexy ladies dancing behind their special like shadow dancing screen that they have and you know eventually you see a whole lot of sex a lot of titties a lot of ass just you know real lascivious stuff um that is featured as much as you know as much as it's allowed to be in the trailer because it's like hey guys come fucking jerk off to this shit Yeah, really titillating for the audience they really went for that that's why it's an exploitation flick too if you want to see the, if you want to know the exact timestamps for the titties and the asses, read Jamie's review on MrSkin.com. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, so yeah, um, after they have all this crazy, crazy sex and they're like, hmm, this is kind of fun. Um, some of the hippies decide to rob them and run off. But, you know, because these hippies are not actually communists uh they leave two of their friends behind when they do this and they leave the two women behind yeah and the guys and just like the guys just get the fuck out of dodge and they take uh what do they take they take like the cash out of the guys wallets and that's yeah it. they steal their wallets and credit cards yeah, and they steal the weed it's I such a dick having, move like having a conversation about taking the credit cards and the, one of them was like don't take the credit that's how you get you know the fucking cops right, okay so they stole yeah. their wallets left and, the credit cards. and i just i just want to emphasize i don't mean it's a dick move to the guys that they robbed because fuck those guys it's a dick move to the chicks because like they could fucking kill them if they're still there and like these guys obviously seem like they're kind of fucked up yeah that's, so. that's something i forgot I, I think that is like a, a point against the counterculture that i i I was probably doing a whip it at that moment. <laughs> also, was there was a, I, explicit I, uh, explicit violence against women because Joe starts smacking one of the girls around. It was just, it, yeah, it was just petty. I mean, so they were just engaged in petty thievery. There's no, there's no like class consciousness or any kind of like revolutionary and, behavior in terms of the way that the counterculture is depicted in this film. And there's it's no solidarity. Some, it's just some guys who sold out some, uh, like some chicks that they know uh, in order to rob these two old men yeah. who, uh, they, you know, they smoke dope and they're like really nervous about, you know, having group sex and then they do it and they have a great time. They realize that they're robbed and, I like this is the turning point where the film gets very, very dark. Yeah. Yeah. And you almost think maybe, maybe they got him, you know, <laughs> like maybe these yeah, guys maybe, got native. Maybe, maybe this is so bad. Maybe it's, yeah. Maybe it's a nice film. How I learned to stop worrying and uh, fucking embrace the counterculture because it's giving them everything that they've subconsciously wanted their entire lives. Well, well, reason that tons of people joined the counterculture, probably the vast majority of them was because free love was a real thing. You really could go to the Lower East Side or hate Ashbury or whatever other hip neighborhood and get laid. And so that's why millions of kids 
join the counterculture between the, in the late 60s. They might also like smoking dope, too. Access to free drugs. Yeah, but that's what uh, that's what DSA needs more of, I think. Sexual mutual aid. Sex, drugs. Bunch of fucking nerds, man. Mm -hmm. I love them. But anyway, we can try injecting more sex and drugs into the left. But, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to come out and say that's that's going to solve a lot of the problems. (laughs) I mean, it worked. It worked in the 60s. Right. Just kidding. No, No, the 60s were a disaster. uh, So, I mean, so there's there's, you know, there's a little more about. You know, there's a little more about gender relations, I think, in this part, which is, okay, even in the counterculture, the guys are very shitty to the women and just leave them to be abused by these two men. And what happens is Joe, you know, wakes up and I believe Compton tells him, like, oh, our, our fucking shit was stolen, our fucking, you know, the cash in our wallets were stolen. And Joe violently attacks the woman that, uh, like five seconds ago was like, Oh, I love you so much. I'm like, this is a life changing experience. Violently attacks her. Yeah, which like, is, you know, not an uncommon thing for a man to do. Unfortunately. Uh, yeah. The misogyny is all over this film. Like it's definitely a part of the, um, the right wing populist ethos. Like even uh, when Joe gropes Compton's wife, he does it right in front of Compton and, you know, he's almost kind of daring him to side with his wife against him. And he's like, nope, mm-hmm. you grope that bitch all you want. Yep. There's no, I mean, if you read histories of uh, the new left and the hippie, they were not exactly enlightened when it came to gender relations. Certainly like the Black no. Panthers and the White Panthers and a lot of these groups were like strictly and explicitly uh, patriarchal and how they understood what women's roles were in like the revolution man or whatever. Which is just like fucking taking the cash out of these guys' wallets and maybe taking their credit cards. No, no, can't take the credit cards. The very Just... credit, the very credit cards that Joe was so upset that black people were, were getting from <laughs> fucking gimbals. And there Call he is back. losing his own credit card to a bunch of hippies. Man, sounds degenerate. So they, so oh, now, I, I, now they they find out from uh, you know torturing these girls that they they're going upstate to a commune. This uh, is on. This is a beautiful little house on the Hudson that I am trying to rent for a weekend <laughs> on Airbnb. I've got a picture of it. We can, if you guys want to add that picture to the show notes and let us know if this house still exists, I will definitely <laughs> rent it and fucking drop acid there and have a weird, scary time <laughs> and get murdered. Um, and I want. I also. I, I really don't want to downplay the violence of that scene because oh, yeah. it is of a like when there, there's two. Uh, the only uh, sort of violence that we saw earlier in the film was uh, Compton mauling the shithead boyfriend to death. And this is them just mauling with just like a brutal fucking in a brutal fucking way. Well, it gets even worse when they go to the commune. Right. And there's this crazy scene where um, Joe starts shooting the guys. They get an altercation. And then he's like, come on, man fucking do it are you a man like fucking kill the fucking hippies and yeah he gets he starts shooting him too and bust down the door and just start firing and the bodies just start piling up i was like maybe 14 or something people they shot just like 
Yeah. And then, of course, the final freeze frame is Compton, uh, I guess mistakenly, but maybe not, uh, shoots his own daughter in the back while she's running away. Um, I think that was. There's this point where, and like this is the, I mean, this is basically the climax of the film where they go upstairs and they're like, where is she? Or no, I'm sorry. They just want their money. They've not. They, yeah. they, they forgot the about the daughter. The yeah, idea. they forgot they, about the daughter. about the daughter. Uh, not Susan as Sammy, did we all. Which, as did which, I. Yeah, which which we which we all did because there's not. We don't actually see what happens to her after she runs away from the hospital, and we just see what happens to these two guys. Uh, like there's just some maybe just like hanging out, getting high, and one's like, "Please don't kill me. I'm just here to get high." Which in my mind is like how I would react to that sort of situation. <laughs> Oh like, yeah, that's definitely like, I, how we're both gonna die. Yeah, I like. I don't know what you want. I'm. I'm just getting high. You just please don't point these firearms at me. Uh, and Compton is like, like he loses his. Um, you know, he, he loses his uh, will to commit a mass shooting, even though he's basically in the middle of it. And Joe's like. I think Joe. I think Joe points the gun at him and says, "Like no, yeah, like, they does. gotta die." The implication like, is that 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 they go up to the farmhouse in order to get their money back from these people. They're very mad that they got ripped off by them, and uh, Compton, in fact, is surprised when Joe opens up his trunk and brings out two uh, long guns. Mm-hmm. And then Joe throws him a gun and says, "Okay, let's do this." And he looks kind of confused. And I believe that uh, Compton thinks they're going in there to get their wallets back. But as immediately when Joe comes in, he just starts opening fire on hippies. And then, yeah, I mean, there's he this. He had to know that that was going to happen. Well, he was a little naive walking into it, too. And it's the same, like, oh, he should have known thing that we see in maybe in retrospect. He should have known that maybe that was the same commune that his daughter might be crashing at as she ran away from home. But he, you know. We only know that in retrospect. It's ambiguous because he might know those things, right? Well, I I want to ask you this. Would it be surprising if the film had gone in a different way? Where if it was Compton who just bashed in the door and just started firing? It would have been. Do you you think there's there's an interesting reason why it is Joe I mean, Compton, it's his turn. He does it first, right? And then it's Joe's turn. And then he brings Compton back along with him. I mean, is it that Joe is like simply given the license to do this by the fact that he knows a guy like Compton who's already murdered hippies and of course Joe wants to kill hippies? I mean, for all that uh, that Joe and the audience potentially uh, looks up to Compton for like cleaning the filth off the street, Compton did that, um, you know, spur of the moment, heat of passion, that first murder. Uh, and it's Joe always who seems much more premeditated about his desires in order to like sweep the streets of the trash and kill all the degenerate but youth. But Joe and the would hippies. not act on his desires were it not for this catalyst. No. Otherwise, and, he would just be a guy who uh, goes to bars and bitches about yeah, hippies no. and black people. Well, they, but then they the tragedy, feed off one another. But, but the, they feed off each other. And the tragedy then at the very end is that this cycle of this cycle of violence that, that these two and, and, the, and the glorification of violence that Joe and Compton have together grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until it gets to the point that 
this one act of violence that's committed now grows into uh, Joe wholesale massacring and then Kurt, um, Compton, of course, himself getting so wrapped up in the violence um, against these hippies that he kills his own daughter. I mean, there's something very kind of on the nose and very pat about that ending for the movie, but that's what makes it like that, that, that last act of violence, killing his own daughter, brings us into like the deranged mindset that these two people have done to each other throughout the entire well, movie. Well, really, the message wasn't uh, clear enough because, you know, despite this incredibly sad, fucked up ending, most of the people who saw the movie were like, hell yeah, this fucking rules. Right. I wish I could murder my hippie daughter and her piece of shit boyfriend too. Well, I want to get to that, but I, I just want to say very quickly, the point that I'm trying to bring up is that in the middle of the shooting spree, which is like the last two minutes of the film, Compton is ambivalent. He's like, wait a minute, what the fuck have I gotten myself into? Yeah, that's true. And like that creates the tragic irony of him murdering his own daughter in the very, very last show. Well, he yeah. basically has to choose between shooting Joe and shooting the hippies, right? And he chooses That's, to yeah. shoot the hippies. But they yeah. both talked themselves up to the point where they had such a bond around violence that like the violence carries Compton away. I mean, Joe goes up there intending to murder, to massacre as whoever he can. But then the tragedy, again, the irony is that Compton, who had only committed violence in a fit of passion, something about something very personal for himself, which was the safety of his daughter, now ends up in a position where, of course, he's murdering. It's very Greek tragic. I, I, I want to clarify this, and I, I misspoke earlier, so if you could cut that out, I don't want the audience to think I'm, I'm getting my Joe facts wrong because then the <laughs> Joe Reddit subreddit is going to be on my ass. Uh, that, yeah, yes, as Jamie said, it was uh, Compton who put the gun on Joe and said it stops here. And it was Joe's derangement that won the day. Yeah, I think what's playing out there is the whole the whole time up to now, you don't know if Compton is really the kind of person who could kill someone, even though he, we saw that he had. Maybe to him it was just a fit of rage. It was a one-time thing that he wants to sweep under the rug. Uh, but now Joe loves him so much for it that he like is starting to get into this idea that maybe I am a killer. Maybe I am this uh, revanchist uh, old white man. And then he gets yeah. to actually choose in that scene. And even though he is, uh, you know, possibly going to land on the right side, he gets sucked into the killing. And I think this is a commentary that even fantasies, even violent fantasies of doing uh, some sort of violence that is completely justified can lead to this path. Yeah. So we should be careful about what even what we fantasize about or what we say we want to happen um, because just saying it can kind of will it into reality. Unfortunately, Andy, I'm very, I'm, <laughs> sorry. I'm very, very cautious about my fantasies. Yes, sure you that. <laughs> or just you, uh, you got to make sure you separate them. You know, but, but, but from reality, here's like here's the interesting point to me. Compton has a reason to hate hippies because, like that culture, uh, put his daughter in the hospital. Mm. Joe does not seem to have a reason to hate hippies. There's no indication whatsoever other well, than that, ruining purely, the fucking country it's a purely yeah it's a purely virtualized issue for him compton it's personal for joe it's political it's mm -hmm. deeply political it's about his vision of what america's supposed to be and what life and freedom are supposed to be he's offended but that's still by personal this. Well, no, I mean, that's but, personal, but in a different fashion. I that's think it's, not, I think it's, been it's an injury caused to you. There's been injury caused to your, your subconscious. But, I, I, but that's I, the, I, the personal is political is a new left concept and they would have hated that. <laughs> but I, I should say it also, 
uh, I think if it comes political at the end when he's trying to decide, you know, am I going to shoot this crazy motherfucker Joe or am I going to shoot these poor hippies who just want to get high? Like, which way do you think society is pushing him on that one? Like, who do you think the cops are going to care more about? Uh, who's going to get more sympathy if this guy gets uh, put on trial? Like, obviously, uh, there's a real zeitgeisty moment. And we can talk about the real history of this in a second yeah. for getting back at hippies. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. So. And now, here's Virgil, Texas, with a plug. So, if you enjoy me talking about cinema, something that you're really going to enjoy is this podcast that I do. It's called Bad Faith, and I co-host it with this brilliant individual named Brianna Joy Gray. She was Bernie Sanders' ex-press secretary. We are more than colleagues. We are more than buddies. We are friends. And we talk about current affairs together. And it's great. It's a delight. You can check it out at badfaithpodcast.com or pretty much anywhere that podcasts are sold. We're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash badfaithpodcast where you can get a whole bunch of clips of us. I recommend the Chelsea Manning episode. That was uh, that was a famous two-par that we just did talking to American hero Chelsea Manning. Yes. And it was great. I loved it. And I really liked it too. Sorry to step on you. I really liked the episode you did with Boots Riley too. I think we're going to unlock that one. So honestly, if you want to keep apprised of what's going on in the bad faith world, go check out badfaithpodcast.com. Five bucks a month on Patreon. There's also, um, yeah, also follow Bree Bree Joy on Twitter. She will let you know the scoop. Don't follow me on Twitter because I'm just there to harass people. It's not, you're not getting any useful information from me. But if you do want to watch me harass people, it's at Virgil. Thanks, Virgil. And stay tuned for part two, where we talk more about the history of Joe.